Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. If you got your Bible app or your bulletin or however it is you're going to track along, we've been in this series called Creed um, for four weeks now, and we've, it's, it's one of our longer series. It's a 10-week one that's take us right up, right before Easter, and we've just been breaking down, just looking line by line at the old Roman Creed. If you've been around church for a while, um, you're probably familiar with the Apostles' Creed, which is a little longer, has some more stuff in it. Um, the Nicene Creed, maybe you come from a traditional background and, and your, your congregation when you were younger in another congregation, you did the Nicene Creed. They all have these elements in it, but the old Roman Creed predates the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed by a couple of centuries. And its, it's oldest um, recording is found um, at about 125 AD. Well, the Apostle John died in year 100. So this goes back and is rooted to eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry and connection. Um, and so this is, this is vital for us. And we look to this, why? Because it, this, is, this is the framework of our faith. In fact, this is the, our leading idea that what we believe is the framework of our relationship with God. You're not going to paint any bigger picture of God than the framework you have to work with. You're just not. And so we want to make sure that our framework presents God. We haven't unnecessarily cropped him too small or abstract or left part of his character out. And the creed helps us to understand who he is, what he has accomplished in our lives. So we begin to see the, the bigness of our God and, and what has been accomplished in our life. And understanding this with us 2,000 years later, thousands of miles in an ocean away, that all of a sudden we're here all of this time and distance away, holding on to something true and something real that did not just arbitrarily come about as, you know, out of somebody's personal frustration over something and decide, well, this needs to be scripture so that people actually adhere to it and do it. And so we, we had our, our son, Weston, when he was five years old, he kind of tried to play this card. And so he, in fact, one day, I'm pretty sure it was Pastor Keenan who had provoked this moment. And so um, it may have been Brooklyn. She had her equal amount of provoking. So, um, but anyways, uh, uh, when Weston was five, um, he comes in and tells me, um, uh, Dad, I, I made up a scripture today. Uh, mm, okay. I'm raising a heretic. <laughs> so this, this is dangerous. I got kids making up scriptures. He's like, yeah, dad, I made up a scripture today. And I was like, well, okay, well, what, what, was this, what was this scripture? Don't turn out the light while somebody's in there. That was his scripture. Well, I guarantee old Keenan shut the door, turned the light off, and laughed like crazy on the other side of that door. And I don't have personal recollection of that, but I'm pretty sure it happened. And so, but uh, his little understanding knew that if our household could begin to embrace that as scripture, he would not get the light turned out on him again. And so, but he just thought, hey, I can just, you know, make up this scripture. This is important to me. We're just going to call it scripture. 
And an immature view of the scriptures can look at it and think that, you know, somebody just decided, just arbitrarily wrote these things down and called them important. And that is not the case at all. The Holy Spirit was guiding and leading. Our scriptures have been, have been given to us by God to lead us and guide us and pro- pro- provide the framework to see and to understand God and us desiring to understand what holds this up is vital. Now, most of us here in the Bible Belt, if you've been around here a while, the idea that Jesus is the Savior, you probably are like me and don't remember the first time you heard that concept. It's just been a part of the fabric of culture around here. But there's a place where, yes, just because you have heard it your whole life and your parents adhered to it and your grandparents adhered to it and it's just something that everybody around you nodded yes to. At some point for this to really have teeth for you, you have to decide this is what I believe. This is what I believe. And that is why all of the creeds say, I believe. Not we, not collectively, I I believe this, I own this. And to arrive to that place, it can't be simply a hand-me-down, copy-paste kind of idea. You have to have gone through it. And the gospels, the scriptures, the gospel of Luke in particular, is, was written so that a careful investigation can be made so that we can be certain of what we believe. In fact, let's look at Luke chapter one, verse one again. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This gospel was written after careful investigation so that one person could be certain of what they've been taught. You being certain of what you have been taught is important to the heart of God. Not just everybody who gathers under the umbrella of church or Christianity, but you. This gospel was written for a person, not so it could be spread around so everybody do it. It says, no, so you, Theophilus, can understand this. I want you to get this. It's important that you understand that God wants you, you to understand it. And careful investigation is part of what we value. It is not something that we're afraid of, that all of a sudden, that if you begin to ask questions, well, then now I'm a doubter, and I just need to hush my mouth and, to, and take what the church says for, for fact, and no, investigate it. Investigate it, careful investigation, so that you can be certain of what you believe. Why? Because it holds up to careful investigation. We're not intimidated of it. Luke was, the whole gospel of Luke was founded on it. Careful investigation. So with that, 
That's what we're doing. That's what this whole series is about. And we're going to see why these pieces are important for what we believe. Let's look at the old Roman creed one more time. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh and life everlasting. These are core pieces. They're not all of it, but these are all core pieces of what we believe, and they help build that framework. Today, we're going to look at the fourth piece of that, which says this, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried on the third day, rose again from the dead. So here we are, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about what we believe. There's only a couple of names mentioned, Mary, Jesus, and Pontius Pilate. As we're going to have this statement of faith, we have to talk about and acknowledge Pontius Pilate, just this Roman governor. That's like having our, that Jesus lived today and that we talk about Governor Abbott, that he finds his way into our creed. That every time we get together, we have to say something about Governor Abbott. We're like, I don't want Governor Abbott. I don't, you know, I'm not mad at him or nothing. It's just, I don't want, when I'm talking about Jesus, I don't want to talk about Governor Abbott too. I just want to talk about Jesus. But that's what they understood and that's what I believe. And, and here Pontius Pilate was critical. And Pontius Pilate is mentioned to date and locate the events of Jesus. The reference to Pontius Pilate happens at the beginning where we say that Jesus, under Pontius Pilate, Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. The most critical piece of our statement of faith that he died, he was buried, and he rose again is, is stuck and opens up with this thing of Pontius Pilate existing. It does that because Pontius Pilate was an actual verifiable person not just referencing the scriptures, but referencing other Roman things, other historic writings around that time period, other even spiritual religious writings that, had, that were anti-Christian reference Pontius Pilate. Why? And it's in our statement of belief because it gives this verifiable point where we can go back because it actually happened. It actually took place. It's not just this euphemistic idea that, that Jesus was this ideal person. He was this mythological person who lived on some point, and he did all of these perfect things, and, and then he, he figuratively died for us. No, he actually lived. He actually died, and we Put Pontius Pilate in there because he is a verifiable person. In fact, here's what's funny. is the gospel writers did this themselves and put him in there quite a bit. 
Um, as you, we're familiar with, you know, the 12 apostles. Um, you know, most of us in this room probably can't name them all, you know, but if I say apostle, you'll say Peter. If I say apostle, you'll say John. If I say apostle, you won't say Thaddeus, but he was one of them. Um, and Thaddeus, who is part of the original crew, man, he's witness, he's eyewitness to everything Jesus did. His name shows up in the Bible two times in the list of the disciples, list of the apostles. That's, that's it. That's the only time we hear anything about him is in those moments. He was pivotal. He played a huge role, but we hear about him two times. The gospel writer Luke, who writes Luke, and he writes the book of Acts, traveled all over the place with Paul. His name is in the Bible three times. Three times. He don't even slip his own name into his own writings. He don't even, he don't even put it in there. When we see it, it's when Paul referenced the, the Dr. Luke was along with us on this point in this journey. Luke's name is in the scriptures three times. Um, the apostle Bartholomew, that was the other one you were going to say it. You almost yelled. When I said apostle, you almost said Bartholomew. I know you did. Four times. Four times. Matthew, the tax collector, disciple, gospel writer. Matthew, his name appears in the Bible seven times. Good old apostle Thomas, doubting Thomas, poor dude, gets a bad rap, 11 times. Apostle Andrew, Peter's brother. Andrew was one of the first two called to be, in, to be a disciple. He's right there in the beginning, 14 times in the scripture. We see his name. Then old Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, 24 times. Apostle Philip, Philip does some awesome stuff. Awesome stuff, 36 times. James, James shows up 42 times, but Pilate, Pilate's name is in the scriptures 62 times. 62 times. All four gospel writers talk about him, and it's not simply because he's part of the narrative. There are lots of people who are part of the narrative. There are lots of people who are right in the middle of it. Pilate is included in all the gospel writings because he was the governor, the Roman governor, verifiable, fact-checkable moment, Roman governor of Judea at the time of Jesus's ministry. He was there. And they talk about him. They talk about what he had to say, his actions, his decisions, all of those different things. Because all of this time later, for those who are wanting to verify is this any of this even legit? You can go back 2,000 years later and find in other writings, not Bartholomew, not Thaddeus, but you can find Pontius Pilate. In fact, his name is etched on a monument there in the Judean area. You see Pontius Pilate, but he... Uh, Amazingly, he, just so that we kind of know a little bit more about him, um, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus writes about Pontius Pilate, and we know some stuff that happens to him after 
um, everything goes down with Jesus. And so he only stayed in the Judean area another three or four years um, because around uh, 36 um, AD, he, there's a Samaritan uprising. Pontius Pilate does not handle it very well. It gets out of control. It doesn't happen well. And Emperor Tiberius finds out about it and recalls him from his post and has him travel all the way back to Rome to stand before Emperor Tiberius for how he had mishandled the Samaritan uprising. And as he is on that long journey, Tiberius dies and Josephus records all of this. Has nothing to do with the scriptures, has nothing to do with any of this. He's just a historian of the day. And by the time he arrives in Rome in uh, May of year 37, uh, Tiberius had died. And Caligula had taken over as emperor. And as messed up as he was, he just wasn't interested in Pilate. And Pilate, uh, as far as Roman reference, kind of falls off the, the radar after year 37. Um, but Pilate was such an understood and pivotal figure um, that in uh, year 175, just 50 years after, just 50 years after the creed is the first reference to the creed. This is the creed, is, this Roman creed is being used all over the place. A guy who hated Christianity named Celsus um, and just was like, could not stand Christianity, writes this treatise, writes this paper to try to debunk Christianity. And one of his big arguments was the fact that if Jesus really was the son of God, then why, why did Pilate live out his days in peace? Why, if, if Jesus was really the son of God, then God would have killed Pilate. He'd have done something terrible to him. His life would have been ruined and messed up. And that was Celsus' argument it was the fact that it was documented fact that Pilate went on to live a normal, regular life. He was a pivotal, understood, historical figure of that time. And it's in our creed to date and locate the greatest thing that ever took place in history so that we are able to understand it. In fact, let's look at what the, some of what the scriptures have to say about Pilate. In Matthew 27, verse one, it says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. Now, the Jews in uh, Jerusalem and, and all of Israel was a dominated uh, land. Rome dominated. That's why Pilate is there. So they were not allowed to execute anybody on their own. They could arrest them. They could flog them. They could do a lot of different things, but they could not have a public execution the way they wanted to. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus. And if it wasn't for the Romans, there would have been no cross. They, they would have stoned him. They, would have, they were going to kill him one way or the other. And so, but they have to get permission. And the person they have to get permission from is Pilate for Jesus to be able to be executed. And so they brought him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Um, there, as you continue to read, there is some back and forth. And, and Pilate really 
um, Pilate really doesn't want, he doesn't see any guilt in Jesus. And so in verse 15, it says, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Now he was being pretty smart here because, you know, he's, he wants to keep the Jewish people under control, okay? Um, we already know from history that a few years later, he doesn't keep the Samaritan people, which are right there close. He doesn't keep them under control very well, and he loses his post. So he understands the way he keeps the peace um, is going to determine if he gets to keep his job. So he doesn't want to tick the Jewish people off, but he's like, I, I don't have a problem with this Jesus guy. I'm going to do a workaround here. And um, we're going to let the crowd make the decision. Now, this was pretty smart of him because just a week before was the triumphal entry of Jesus. So Jesus comes in, and this is where that people are taking off their cloaks. They're cutting branches down, laying them on the road, and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. He who comes and saying that Jesus is Messiah, that he's the son of David. Man, that was what the crowd was saying. He's like, if I let the crowd have their way, just a week ago, they were calling this guy king. They're going to turn him loose. And so, verse 16, it says, at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. And so, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah, for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting in the, on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. And as they are chanting, and they want him to be crucified, in verse 23, he asked them, why, what crime has he committed? When Jesus went to the cross, the guy who gave the go-ahead for his execution, eventually gives the go-ahead for his execution, publicly declares Jesus innocent. This is pivotal because Jesus was not a criminal on a cross. We don't look back and glorify somebody who was a criminal who was publicly executed, and all of a sudden we just make up some wonderful tale about what a wonderful person that criminal who was publicly executed was. No, even the person who was in charge of him said he's innocent. Jesus went to the cross, publicly declared innocent. He was not dying even for a perceived infraction by those who gave uh, permission for his death. And said, and it says, but they shouted louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting Remember, the last thing in the world he wants is an uproar, that he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. And he goes through and he does this dramatic thing. He doesn't just hey, say, I'm, I, I, I want nothing to do with this. He dramatically takes a bowl of water, 
takes it in front of all of them and says, look, I've washed my hands. I am not involved in this. This blood, his blood is not on me. He says, it's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. See, in this moment, they think they're taking responsibility for the death of Jesus. But what was really happening was that the death of Jesus was taking responsibility for their sin. And so in that, as Jesus is even hearing them say, his blood be upon us and on our children, he's saying, yes, that is exactly what this is about. This is about my blood being applied to you and to your children. It's about bringing real forgiveness and real redemption and real salvation and real life. That is what this is about. That was Jesus's heart. That was it. And they thought, they thought they were signing one in and they actually have this declaration of saying, no, we want his blood being applied to us, not realizing the eternal implications of that truth. And then he released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to crucifixion. See, this fact is included in our creed to verify the truth that Jesus defeated death. As we look at the rest of everything that comes after Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried and rose again. As we look at that, hinged to the verifiable event of Pilate being governor of Judea, so that you and I can look and see that Jesus actually died on the cross. There was actually wood that held the Son of God, nailed to it. There was actually blood that dripped out of his hands and feet, off of his head, out of the lashes on him. There was actually a body that was taken off of a cross and actually put in a tomb and actually stayed there three days and actually came out alive again, presented itself to the, to the world and ascended and will come again. It is the truth. It is not a metaphor. It is not, a, it's not just something that looks back and gives us some sort of inspiration to deal with a, a hard and difficult time of life. No, it's the truth. It changes everything. It is a historical fact. It's a historical fact that Jesus went to the cross for you and I, that Jesus was buried for you and I, that Jesus was rose again for you and I. This is vital to our faith, and Paul acknowledges it in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If he's not been raised, if the resurrection didn't really happen, this is all pointless. Go home. Go ahead and go to lunch. We're done here. If Jesus is not raised, which is why we talk about a guy we really don't care to talk about in our own statement of faith, Pontius Pilate, because it reminds us of the time and the place that our Heavenly Father sent his son to die on our behalf. This is absolutely vital to what we believe. Romans 6, 9 says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, 
He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Death is no longer at work in Christ's life. He now has defeated it. He's beat it. And part of that is what gives you and I faith to deal with the stuff we're dealing with today. Whether it's been a pandemic over the last two years, whether it's this threat of international war and who knows what's going to come of all that. All of these different things, you and I are able to have this place of faith in Christ that it's not whether or not things calm down that we can finally have peace. No, we can have peace in the storm because our heavenly father, our Christ walks on water. He came out, he raises the dead. That's what he does. Revelations 1:17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. He's about to let us know why we don't have to be afraid. About to let us know. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. We don't have to be afraid because our Savior has beaten death. We don't have to be intimidated. The last little thing that the earth, the world and its system holds over us is the threat of death. And you know what? This, Paul goes on to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And folks, we've lived in a cushy place for a long time, and I am thankful of it. But you know what? We have brothers and sisters around the world who have clinged to this truth in other countries and other places that are persecuted to their deaths, and they have lived this out, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And folks, this is something you and I, as life moves forward, we're going to have to get a hold of more and more and more. John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is what we hold on to. It is the truth that changes everything. Folks, our bottom line is this, that Jesus' death and resurrection is the most important event in history, and our creed ties that to a historically verifiable person, a guy named Pontius Pilate. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.